Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers of the Islamic History Podcast. And we are currently covering the life of Prophet Muhammad, وسلم, also known as the Sirah. And this is Sirah episode number 40. And in this episode, we are going to be wrapping up the Battle of Tabuk. And this is just one last incident that happened during the Battle of Tabuk. We, we will discuss the story of Ka'ab ibn Malik. But before we get into that, just a quick recap of the last episode. There were several interesting stories as the Muslims traveled uh, north across the Arabian Peninsula towards the region of Tabuk. We discussed in the last episode, that is episode 39, we discussed the ruins of Thamud and the Prophet's warnings about drinking from the springs at those ruins. We also discussed the numerous discussions, whisperings, um, different dealings going on with the hypocrites that did go along in this battle procession with the Prophet. And then we also discuss the story of Abu Dhar, who was a righteous Muslim who happened to get left behind a little bit. And we discuss how one of the Prophet's predictions regarding Abu Dhar happened to come true. We also discuss the how the rumors of this uh, Byzantine invasion were a bit overblown by the time the Muslim army arrived in Tabuk. There were there was no Byzantine army to speak of there. And so instead, the prophet used this as an opportunity to broker treaties with some of the Christian Arab tribes in the region. And finally, the Muslims left Tabuk and returned to Medina. And on the return journey, we discussed the small watering hole at the Valley of Mushakak. We also discussed how the prophet ordered the burning of the Masjid of Descent, that is Masjid al-Durad, which had been built by uh, a clan that was predominantly full of um, hypocrites. And then we left off with the Prophet arriving back in Medina and having to deal with the various hypocrites who stayed behind and had a bunch of excuses. And then there were also three sincere Muslims who had stayed behind, but they had no real excuses. Most of the information we have regarding how the Prophet dealt with those three righteous Muslims who stayed behind in Medina while everyone else took part in Ghazwatul Tabuk, Ghazwatul Tabuk, which is the battle of Tabuk that the Prophet went on. Most of the information we have regarding these uh, Muslims who stayed behind comes from a the story of Ka'ab ibn Malik, who was one of those three Muslims who stayed behind. There were actually four. A man named Abu Khuthayma also stayed behind. But after the battle, the uh, army had left with the Prophet, Abu Khuthayma began feeling guilty. and He went out to meet them, and uh, we discussed him in the last episode. So now let us get into the story of Ka'ab ibn Malik. And before getting started, Let's uh, just find out quickly who was Ka'ab ibn Malik. He was an Ansar, meaning he was from Medina. He was not one of the Muhajir coming from Mecca who migrated to Medina. He was a an Ansar from the Khazraj tribe. And I believe his clan was the Abu Salama clan within the Khazraj tribe. He was one of the first 
people in Medina to give the bay'ah to Prophet Muhammad In fact, he had given the bay'ah or the Pledge of Allegiance to the Prophet at the at Al-Aqaba, even before the Prophet himself had made the Hijrah. So we discussed a long time ago, back on the early episodes of the Sira, how uh, a group of, of Muslims, well, a group of pilgrims from Medina traveled to Mecca during the Hajj season, while the Prophet and his small group of followers before the Hijrah were being oppressed in Mecca, and they wanted to see if the Prophet could become their leader and bring some stability and order to the uh, to their home in Medina, where the, where the Aus and the Kharzaj were constantly fighting each other. They were hoping the Prophet could bring them some unity, and they also had some some suspicion that he might actually really truly be a Prophet. They wanted to take advantage of it. Well, Ka'ab ibn Malik was one of those first group of Muslims who went there. So his faith and his sincerity was not in question. At all. He had participated in the Battle of Uhud. He did not participate in the Battle of Badr. I don't know why he didn't participate in the Battle of Badr. I don't know if he um, just couldn't make it or if he was traveling at the time. I'm not really certain why. But he did participate in the Battle of Uhud. And he was the one, when everyone had thought the Prophet had been killed at the Battle of Uhud, because the Prophet had been struck in the face and he had been injured, but he was he was not killed. Ka'ab ibn Malik he was the one who who let everyone know, the Muslim soldiers know, that the Prophet was actually still alive. And finally, Ka'ab ibn Malik was well known for his poetical skills, which, as we mentioned before, was a very good skill to have in these early days of Islam. In Arabia in general, having um, good poetical skills was kind of like being a programmer today. If you could, if you could, uh, like being a programmer today will probably get you a job no matter what. Being a good poet in the Arabian Peninsula uh, 1,400 years ago will probably keep you well fed. And so now the prophet is back in Medina. The Battle of Tabuk is over. And about 80 men had stayed behind after the prophet and his army had left. When he returned, he uh, when the Prophet that is returned to Medina, he prayed at Masjid al-Nabi, not the uh, Masjid of Descent, not, not Masjid al-Jarar, the Masjid, Masjid al-Nabi, the Prophet's Masjid. He went straight to the Masjid to pray, and then he began to accept visitors. Of course, the Prophet has been gone now for roughly two months now. I believe he left in Rajab. Um, no, I believe he left in the... I believe he left in Rajab. And he returned in Ramadan. And so now that he's back in Medina, people are coming to visit him. And the Prophet is accepting their visitation, accepting them. And people are, particularly the hypocrites, they're coming to him with all of their excuses. And one by one, they have all their excuses. Who knows what they're saying? Uh, We discussed some of their excuses earlier. And some of them, most of them were probably not legitimate, but whether they were legitimate or not, the prophet accepted them on face value. He accepted their excuses. He asked Allah to forgive them and they left and they went on about their business. However, for the three sincere Muslims who stayed behind, they really didn't have any excuses. They didn't say that they were injured. They didn't say they couldn't afford an animal. They just didn't go. And as I mentioned before, they had just stayed behind mostly because of procrastination. 
So when Kaab ibn Malik finally arrived at the masjid to visit the Prophet, he didn't have an excuse to present to him. And the Prophet, when he greeted um, Kaab ibn Malik, his demeanor was different than the way it was for the hypocrites who had all sorts of various various excuses as to why they didn't uh, participate in the battle. Kaab ibn Malik, however, he had no real excuse, and the Prophet began to question him. First, the Prophet smiled at him, but his smile was one of restrained anger. You can just imagine how someone would give maybe a tight smile, trying to hide or trying to maybe keep under control the anger that they really have. So the prophet smiled at him, but it wasn't a smile of joy. Then he asked Ka'ab if he, basically trying to question Ka'ab why he didn't participate in the battle. He asked him if he had a an animal for the journey, and Ka'ab confirmed that he did. And then Ka'ab began to come off with his own story, not an excuse, but basically his own explanation. And he admitted that he would have made up an excuse if it was anybody else but the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And he admitted that he did not really have an excuse and he had just simply put off preparing for the journey to Tabuk and he kept on procrastinating until it was just too late. However, that may or may not have been much of an excuse because even after the army had left, he could have probably still caught up with them, but for whatever reason, he did not. We mentioned Abu Khuthaymah, who was in the same position. He had procrastinated till it was presumably too late and the prophet and the army had left. But Abu Khuthaymah, he realized his wrong and he said, no, I'm going to go catch up with the prophet. And he went and did just that. Ka'ab ibn Malik and the other two who remained behind, for whatever reason, they did not. And so after telling his story, the Prophet ﷺ simply told Ka'ab ibn Malik to leave his presence until Allah decides what to do with him. And so Ka'ab had no choice but to leave. And as Ka'ab was leaving the masjid, the men of his tribe, they began to crowd around him and walk beside him and, and started rebuking him or chiding him for not having made up an excuse they were saying why did you go basically uh basically uh faulting him for not making up a lie and for telling the prophet the truth they said that the prophet would have forgiven him if he just like he had forgiven all of the hypocrites and they said that the prophet's forgiveness would have been enough and to a certain point they have an ex- they have a point there i mean which one of us would not like to be forgiven by Prophet Muhammad, who would not want that. So they're saying, you should have just made up some sort of excuse, asked the Prophet to forgive you, he would have forgiven you, and that would have been it. But instead, Cobb told told the Prophet the, pr- the truth. And they were saying, you basically should have made up something. <laughs> kind of strange to think about it. They're telling him that he probably should have lied to the Prophet. But be that as it may. Cobb ibn Malik actually, for, for a brief moment, he considered going back to the prophet and recanting his previous statement of not having an excuse and then offering an, an excuse. But then he found out, that, found out that the other two Muslims who had stayed behind, they were in the same situation. He decided that since they had told the truth, that he was going to do the same and stick with the truth. And by the way, these other two men who had stayed behind, their names were Murada. Ibn, Ibn Rabi and Halal Ibn Umayyah. 
And they were both older men, uh, quite a bit older than Ka'ab ibn Malik, who at this time appears to have been pretty young. I'm going to say is probably in his 30s, though I don't really know for certain. Just judging by the by the way he described himself and the activities he was doing, I'm going to say he was probably still a fairly spry ma- young man. Later that day, the prophet then let out an announcement. He announced that no one was to speak to the three men who were left behind and that this punishment of silence was to last until Allah forgave them. And he even and this rule of no one was allowed to speak with them, even their wives weren't allowed to speak with these three men. So this got pretty difficult for Ka'ab ibn Malik. He would go to the market and no one would speak to him. If you can imagine going to a traditional um, Eastern market, you know, open air market like they would have had in Medina, not like the mall where everybody walks around with their headphones on and faces stuck in their, in their, in their cell phones and their smartphones and everything, a, a, a traditional open air Eastern market that exists in much of the Muslim world and probably still exists in much of the Muslim world. You imagine going through that as crowded, it's noisy. Uh, people are, are shouting and yelling and talking, but everybody ignores you. You go to buy something, they'll take your money, they give you the food, but they won't even make eye contact with you. They won't say thank you, they won't greet you, won't say assalamu alaikum. If you say assalamu alaikum, they won't return it. Nothing. Even people you've known all your life, no one wants to speak with you. He would go to pray at the masjid and no one would greet him. And once again, no one would respond to his greetings. So he would go. I mean, that's kind of weird. Even in our day and age, uh, if you go to I mean, I go to any masjid here in the Atlanta area. And even if I don't really know anyone there, I go to a masjid that I'm not really familiar with the people there. Someone is bound to say assalamu alaikum. And if not, at least if I say assalamu alaikum to them, they're going to respond with wa alaikum salam. So it's really kind of weird. I can imagine going to, uh, I can imagine how awkward Ka'ab ibn Malik and the other two Sahaba would have felt going to a masjid and no one greets you and no one returns your greeting. Ka'ab ibn Malik also mentioned how he climbed the wall of his cousin's garden. His cousin's name was Abu Abu Qatada, and they were very close with each other. They had grown up with each other. They were kind of like brothers. And uh, Ka'ab ibn Malik, he climbed the wall where his that overlooked his cousin's garden, Abu Qatada, and he greeted Abu Qatada, his cousin, and Abu Qatada did not respond. Ka'ab ibn Malik then asked Abu Qatada, don't you know that I love Allah and his messenger? And Abu Qatada heard him, but he still didn't respond. And Ka'ab ibn Malik kept asking that same question, don't you know I love Allah and his messenger? Finally, Abu Qatada he replied, Allah and his messenger knows best. And this really hurt Ka'ab ibn Malik because his cousin now had seemingly had, I won't say doubts, but wouldn't confirm Ka'ab's faith. And I can I kind of understand how how um, a lot of Muslims get really, I guess anybody will, not just Muslims, but anyone, but it's, I, I can relate to Muslims because I'm, I'm around them most of the time. A lot of Muslims get very self-righteous, very upset, very angry when their faith is questioned. Um, and, and this, in, in a way, especially from his own cousin, 
really kind of really would have heard Ka'abe bin Malik. You can just try to imagine how you would feel if someone questioned your faith. Are you a true Muslim? And I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole, but we know how there's a, sometimes a strong reaction to the group of Muslims called the Salafi, uh, or Salafi Salihun, as they sometimes call themselves, or the Wahhabis, which is the pejorative word for them, because once again, they don't call themselves Wahhabis. But we know how many of us have a very negative reaction to some of the statements and some of the attitude and behavior of these people who call themselves um, the Salafi and how they often have a condescending attitude or air of superiority over other Muslims and then question. I'm not saying they all do this, but many of them have called into question the faith of other Muslims. And I'm not talking about different sects like Shiites or or Ismailis or anything. I'm talking about other Sunni Muslims. They will sometimes call into question their faith. And they have all sorts of categories for different types of Muslims, the Mudahibun and the um, Sufiyun and all these other... I can't even think of all the different categories they have for the different types of Muslims who they say aren't on the right track. My point is that just like we have, many of us, many Muslims do have that strong negative reaction to anyone questioning our faith, we can see how Ka'ab ibn Malik would have had the same feeling, especially coming from his own cousin. In any case, when Ka'ab ibn Malik heard his cousin Abu Qatada say, Allah and his messenger knows best, Ka'ab ibn Malik broke into tears and jumped down from the wall, and he was really hurt by that. The two other men who had remained behind, they were older men, and so they didn't really have the same strength and vigor and energy as Ka'ab ibn Malik, so they weren't going to the mall, mall. they weren't going to the market, they weren't going to the masjid, they were they were really messed up, however. They they were pretty much spending their entire time in their homes just crying out of despair for having missed out on this opportunity in the Battle of Tabuk. And the Prophet would not speak with these guys either, these uh, men either who had who had uh, been left behind. Ka'ab ibn Malik, when he would go to pray at the masjid, he would work his way to the front row of the suf, of the lines of the, of the Muslims. He would go and make his way to the front row and try to catch the Prophet's eye. And perhaps after the Prophet had finished praying, he turned around to face the other Muslims. Maybe before he started praying, he was making, making sure the lines were straight and everything. But whatever the case would be, Ka'ab ibn Malik would pray in the front row and try to catch the prophet's eye and the prophet when he the prophet did look at him he would quickly turn away from him if his eyes did happen to fall on Ka'ab ibn Malik he would turn away from him and when the uh, Ka'ab ibn Malik when he greeted the prophet um, he would wonder if the prophet responded or not it seems as if he would say alaikum to the prophet and then Maybe the prophet, maybe he would hear a mumble from the prophet, or maybe the prophet's lips would move, and he wasn't sure if the prophet was was responding or not. And he would imagine that he was, he wasn't sure if he was, and so you can imagine how um, Ka'ab and Malik was going through all sorts of mental hula hoops. One day, while he was still going through this silent treatment, Ka'ab ibn Malik was approached by 
a Ghassanid. Uh, the Ghassanid were Christian Arabs in what is now modern-day Syria and parts of Jordan. We had discussed them in episode in the Seda episode 30. The Prophet had sent an emissary to them in the year 6 AH. And a Christian Arab from a Christian Arab Ghassanid, they came. He approached Kaab ibn Malik while he was at the market, and he gave him a letter. And the letter was from the king of the Ghassanids. And this man who happened to be to give the letter to Kaab ibn Malik, he was a farmer who was selling his goods at the Medina market. Which, if we go just away from Kaab ibn Malik's story for a second, just the fact that this um, Christian Arab farmer had traveled all the way from Syria down to Medina to sell his grain at the market of Medina shows you the amazing and explosive growth that Medina had gone through in the time of the Prophet's arrival. At the time that the Prophet ﷺ and those first few Muhajirun arrived in Medina, it was a very, it was really little more than a village. But by this time now, we're now uh, nine years later, basically, it had become the capital of a growing empire that covered most of the Arabian Peninsula. So you can really see that this has really grown to a major city. And some of this rapid growth plays into some of the troubles that the Muslims faced later on after the Prophet's death. But that's a story for another tale. Uh, tale for another story, whatever the case may be. Anyway, the Christian Arab, he gives Ka'ab ibn Malik this letter from the king of the Ghassanids up in Syria. And the king said that he was aware of the treatment that Ka'ab was going through in Medina. And he offered to, provi to provide Ka'ab ibn Malik refuge, um, him and the others, in Syria if they wanted to. So he was giving Ka'ab ibn Malik a chance to leave Medina and settle down with the Christian Arabs in Syria and not have to deal with the punishment that he was going through. Kaab, however, he he uh, rejected the offer, and he took the paper home, the letter home from him, and threw it in the fire, and announced that this was just another trial for him. And he understood that this was really, in a way, a lot testing his patience. And so now, the uh, punishment then gets stricter. About 40 days in, uh, it gets a little bit, stricter for Kaab and the other two. Now, by this time, with about 40 days in, things are really getting difficult for Kaab ibn Malik. And he mentioned, as he relates the story, he mentioned how the land that he had lived in, that is Medina, this land that he had lived in and lived in his entire life was like a strange place to him now. Because once again, he's going through this, wow, like a third, this is now going, this is 40 days that's going on seven weeks now, six weeks, by about six weeks now. So a month and a half of no one talking to him. And you can see how this would be us. This is like really weird to him now. And he begins to feel that this is like a strange place to him. So after 40 days, the Prophet wasallam um, issued another declaration and in this declaration, a companion approached Ka'ab ibn Malik and told him that he had to stay away from his wife. This means basically no relations, no intimacy. Ka'ab asked this um, messenger from 
the messenger, asked him if he had to divorce his wife and the prophet's messenger. So he did not have to divorce him, just had to stay away from, he did not have to divorce her. He just had to stay away from her until Allah's ruling came. And so Ka'ab, he went back to his wife and told her to go live with her family until the, uh, the ruling came. And I'm going to divert just a little bit here. This extension, I will say addendum or addition to the punishment uh, for Ka'ab ibn Malik, it kind of highlights some of the logic behind Islamic divorce rules. Uh, it's in my notes when I was, <laughs> as, as I was typing this out. Uh, this came to mind as I was, I was going through the story. But this logic right here, I'm just going to divert very quick. I'll come back to the story. When a couple divorces in Islam, the the wife is, we're talking about, I do not want to go down this rabbit hole of, of Islamic divorce and marriage rules, but the wife is not to leave the home immediately if it's not the irreconcil- irreconcilable divorce, whereas one of the first two divorce statements, divorce pronunciations, the wife is not to leave the home immediately. And this is mentioned in Surah Tulak. Um, in the first verse of Surah Tulak, the chapter divorce it is. Um, the wife is not to leave the home immediately. She has the right to stay and she actually must stay in her home with the husband until the Edda uh, period, uh, that waiting period passes. And one of the reasons for this is to give the two time to work things out. This is once again, first two divorce declarations. And so by being in the same household, not only is an opportunity for the husband and wife to work things out, but it also increases the chance, the chances of intimacy. And quite frankly, it's kind of hard to stay in the same household with uh, your husband or wife and not fall into intimacy. It's very difficult after, especially for three months, which is what the Ida period is. Unless I'm sadly mistaken, I'm pretty sure it's three months. But uh, it's very hard for um, husband and wife to remain in a household together for three months and for there not to be any, any intimacy between them. Eventually, emotions and hormones are going to, are going to run over and then the intimate, and there's going to be intimacy. Once that happens, the divorce is off and they're back together. And so that's just kind of that, um, uh, I don't say how Allah knows his servants. Yeah, I guess I could say that. Yeah, Allah knows his servants. And I don't want to say I'm speaking for Allah, but... It's uh, just one of those things how Allah knows his knows his slaves. He knows how how humans are. He knows his creation. And he created this rule that seems just like a rule, but there's an underlying mental aspect to it, underlying aspect to it that is really pushing us towards something better, hopefully, inshallah. So back to the story. So as far as the other two companions, particularly one of the two companions who was left behind, his name was Halal ibn Umayyah. His wife went to the prophet and asked him for leniency. She told the prophet that her husband, Halal ibn Umayyah, he was a helpless old man and he didn't have a servant. So she asked the prophet for permission to remain with Halal in order to serve him. I presume preparing his meals, uh, doing wifely things. I, I know the, in the women's liberation era we live in now, maybe that's not the right thing to say, but doing wifely things to serve her husband. 
In any case, she asked for permission to stay and serve in the prophet. He granted her that permission, but said that she could not come near him. And this basically means no intimacy. Obviously, it doesn't mean near him by space or by proximity, because how she's going to serve him without getting close to him? How she's going to give him a plate of food without being close to him? But they couldn't get involved in any intimacy. And Halal's and Halal's wife, she re- replied that um, her husband Halal, he had no desire for her anyway, or for women at all, because he was too irrecon- uh, inconsolable with grief. He was too messed up with the grief and going through the punishment and the sadness about not having participated in the battle that he didn't really have any interest in women anyway. And so that's just another side part that Kaab ibn Malik, for whatever reason, included in the story. Anyway, when some of Kaab's family heard that, heard that Halal's uh, wife was given that permission, they suggested that he go and make the same excuse. Now, I'm not sure which one of his his uh, family members broke the prophet's rule and went and spoke with him because by telling Kaab ibn Malik to ask the prophet to grant him the same leniency that was given to Halal ibn Humayyir, um, Halal ibn Umayyah, by asking for the same thing, they're violating the prophet's edict. Whatever, Allah knows best why that happened. But anyway, Kaab ibn Malik, he rejected that idea because he was once again a young man and he could not make the same excuse that he needed um, his wife to serve him as such. But anyway, eventually, Allah's forgiveness came. Kaab was making Salat al-Fajr on the rooftop of his house on the 50th morning of the punishment. And while he was sitting on his rooftop, I'm supposing watching the sunrise and making vikr or reciting Quran or something like that, or just contemplating his current situation while he was sitting there, he heard someone call out that there was now good news for Ka'ab ibn Malik. And when Ka'ab heard that caller say that, he immediately fell down in prostration because he knew that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had finally accepted his repentance and the repentance of the other two. And so the Prophet, by the way, he had, he had announced that Allah had forgiven Ka'ab ibn Malik and the other two companions after the um, the completion of Salat al-Fajr that morning. Evidently, Kaab he either, according to Kaab Sami, he didn't participate in the prayer that day. He prayed on his roof and he prayed on his rooftop instead, and he was not the master when the prophet gave that made that announcement. As soon as Kaab heard that, he prostrated and he headed for the masjid. He wanted to speak to the prophet directly and hear it directly from him. As Kaab was was uh, walking towards the masjid, people were run, rushing up to him through in the streets and shaking his hand and congratulating him for having finally been forgiven. And then Kaab ibn Malik, he enters the masjid, Masjid al-Nabi, and the first person to jump up and greet him was the Sahaba, the Muhajir, Talha ibn Ubaidullah. There were other, several other Muhajirun, most likely probably the companions' names we've always heard of, um, Abu Bakr, Omar, Uthman, Ali, maybe even Bilal, a couple of others. And But Talha ibn Ubaidullah was the only one to get up and greet him. And Kaab said he never forgot this about Talha. This was evidently something very 
touching or very dear to Ka'ab ibn Malik, that Talha was the first one and the only one to get up and rush over to him and smile and greet him and congratulate him. So the uh, Ka'ab ibn Malik, he sat down and he greeted the Prophet and this time he got a definite response. And the Prophet's face, as Ka'ab described it, was very joyous and he said it shone like the bright moon and he had a real smile this time. And so Ka'ab asked if this forgiveness came from the Prophet or from Allah. And the Prophet responded that it came, it came from Allah. So I guess that answers that question that I asked earlier. Who wouldn't want the the prophet to forgive them. The only thing better than the prophet forgiving you would be Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgiving you. And so Kaab ibn Malik was grateful to hear that. Then Kaab, in his gratitude and his happiness and his his uh, glee, his joyousness at being forgiven, he announced that he was going to give all give away all of his wealth and charity. And you can imagine that feeling of exuberance that you might get with something great happening. You just want to give everything away to Allah. And the Prophet so some he calmed him down, said, No, don't give everything away. Give some away and keep some for yourself. And then Kaab he eventually did settle down and he decided to only give away what he had earned from the Battle of Khaybar. And if you're interested in the Battle of Khaybar, that was discussed in Sira episode number thirty one. If you need to, if you missed it or if you want to know what happened during that battle. So Kaab ibn Malik himself, his own assessment of the situation, he declared after that, after he was uh, he was forgiven, he declared that he would always tell the truth. He believed that Allah had helped him and given him this forgiveness for telling the truth. Kaab ibn Malik, as his uh, family members or his clan members had suggested earlier, he could have lied about it. He could have given an excuse and made made up a small lie as to why he didn't participate. But instead, he stuck with the truth. And had he made up that excuse, then he would have gotten the forgiveness from Prophet Muhammad. But we don't know if he would have gotten the forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We don't know that. However, by telling the truth and remaining patient, he actually got the guaranteed forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so as part of his repentance, Ka'ab ibn Malik, he vowed to tell the truth for the rest of his life. And he actually began making dua or supplication, asking Allah to save him from ever telling a lie going forward. And Ka'ab also mentioned that besides accepting Islam, not lying to the prophet was one of the greatest, was the greatest gift that Allah had ever given him. And this incident is discussed once again in Surah Tawbah. A lot of these things are in, in Surah Tawbah in these last, um, pretty much most of um, the Battle of Tabuk is covered in Surah Tawbah. Uh, Surah Tawbah, um, Allah reveals some verses regarding this incident, which was once again another great um, benefit that Ka'ab got out of this whole whole ordeal. The verses that were Revealed in relation to this incident, they were chapter 9, verses 117 to 119. We will just do the English. Uh, the English translates as, Allah has already forgiven the Prophet and the Muhajirun and the Ansar who followed him in the hour of difficulty after the hearts of a party of them had almost inclined to doubt. And then he forgave them. Indeed, he was to them kind and merciful. 
And he also forgave the three who were left behind and regretted their error to the point that the earth closed in on them in spite of its vastness and their souls confined them. And they were certain that there is no refuge from Allah except in him. Then he turned to them so they could repent. Indeed, Allah is the accepting of repentance, the merciful. O you who have believed, fear Allah and be with those who are true. So, with this, this is pretty much in the story of Ka'ab ibn Malik, and this uh, kind of wraps up the story of Tabuk in general. We will continue on with the Sita in the next episode. The show notes for this episode will be, will be available at islamichistorypodcast.com slash Sita 40. Sita is S-E-E-R-A-H 4-0. There will be links to the full hadith. Uh, where with a Ka'ab ibn Malik story, if you want to read the original, also be linked to the Quran verses that we mentioned above that are related to this episode. And in the next episode, which I hope to cover in this episode, but didn't quite come up, didn't have time for it. In the next episode, inshallah, we will discuss some um, of the tribes that and other clans that had um, accepted Islam as we close out the year 9AH. And actually, that's what we're going to do. Hopefully, in the next episode, we will wrap up the ninth year of the Hijrah and hopefully get into maybe even the 10th year of the Hijrah, which is the last year of the Prophet's life. Until then, however, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.